In so doing, I'd like to read a couple of verses from Psalm 77. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? Father, we echo the words of the psalmist. Who is there that compares to you? There is no God save the God who is in heaven and who also inhabits the earth. Father, we are grateful that you have chosen us to be your children, to draw us into the family of God. And Lord, as we gather here this morning, we know that men and women are gathering all around the world in your name, and we are grateful to be part of that community of believers. We ask that you will execute your will today, even as, we, uh, as the Lord taught the disciples to pray, that may your will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. May it be done this day in this room, in each of our hearts as we study your word. And throughout this campus and throughout this city, we ask that you will glorify your great name. We're so grateful, Lord, that we are in your hands and that we can lean upon you. We know that we in our own lives, in our own beings, are, are, are weak, but you're strong. And your strength is made perfect in our weakness. We thank you for our newlywed couple and for your blessing on them, keeping them safe and bringing back to us this day. And we pray that you'll be honored in the thoughts we have and the words we say in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will turn to the 13th chapter of the book of Judges, in our study of this particular book, we have arrived at uh, probably the most popular of all the judges, or at least the most known of all the judges. If you were to just go out into the community and say, how many of you have heard of Jephthah? <laughs> how many of you have heard of Othniel? And most people look at you like you probably came back on the last Mars mission. But if you say, how many of you have heard of Samson? Oh, suddenly the light goes on. You know, Everybody has heard of Samson. Well, maybe not everybody, but most people have heard of Samson. So let's read in the 13th chapter, beginning with verse 1. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines forty years. And there was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. And I did not ask him where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now you shall not drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom thou hast sent come to us again. 
that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the husband, to the woman, as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came the other day has appeared to me. Then Manoah rose and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to the woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come to pass, what shall be the boy's mode of life and his vocation? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Let the woman pay attention to all that I said. She should not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. Let her observe all I have commanded. Last week we looked at the first portion of this passage that I read this morning. And we noted that here we have a man of God, obviously, a man named Manoah, of the tribe of Dan. Now Dan, remember, is central to uh, Israel. The tribe of Dan lived down in this area down in here. You have the tribe of Dan over here, the tribe of Benjamin here, the tribe of Judah down here. Eventually, and we'll come across this later in the book of Judges, the tribe of Dan will flee from this region and will move all the way up into this region up in here. You see the name Dan up there? That's the name of a town which would become a center of the tribe of Dan. It's the only tribe that actually will move its location during the course of the history of the nation of Israel before the time of the uh, kingdom. So here we have Manoah and his wife. And notice in the whole passage, his wife is never named. Simply the wife of Manoah. Why that is, we can only speculate. But obviously, as far as God's purpose was concerned, chose not to. This woman has been barren for many years. She is older, probably, uh, past the normal childbearing years, or at least late in the normal childbearing years. They have prayed for a child, no, no, no doubt. And now God has answered that prayer. And he's come to her in the angel of the Lord and promised that a son would be born, but that this son will begin to deliver, notice the word, begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And he is to be a Nazarite. And last Sunday we read from the book of Numbers what that meant and what the description was in terms of, of the Nazarite vow. And I, mo I mentioned last week that the word Nazarite has virtually nothing to do with either the city of Nazareth or the name Nazarene. So Jesus was not a Nazarite. And that is not a reference to him being one when he's referred to as a Nazarene. They had not had any children. And the son that is coming to them now, they're told, will be a special son. He will be special in the sense that he will be a Nazarite from the moment of his birth to the day of his death. That is unusual. Usually the Nazarite vow was taken by somebody for a specified period of time. A person chose to be a Nazarite for, let's say, a year as a sacrifice unto God. And in Numbers, it tells you how you, you did that and how you ended the term and you know, how, what the meaning of the whole thing was. But in this case, this is a Lord-appointed Nazarite vow, and this man was to be a Nazarite for his entire life. Manoah feels unqualified to raise such a son. And so he calls on the Lord for help. Send the man back that he might teach us how to raise our son. In this, Manoah demonstrates great wisdom. True wisdom recognizes when we don't know what we need to know. 
And Manoah recognized that he did not know how to raise this son. And I think most of us, especially when we first had children, we could have prayed a prayer along with Manoah, oh Lord, help us to know how to do this. Because I think very quickly we recognize that we don't really know how to raise children to the glory of God without his divine presence in our lives. We are told in this passage that God listened to Manoah's prayer and that he sent an answer within a few days. Now, there's nothing in this passage that directly indicates that Manoah had any doubt about his wife's word. Remember, he was not there when the angel came to her. And so she simply reported, the angel came, this is what he said, he was very awesome, and this is the promise that he gave. But I think that there is a little slight underlying motive here in Manoah's request for the angel to come back that he might be able to personally validate his wife's account. It is interesting that when the angel returns, in answer to Manoah's prayer, he again appears to her alone. She is sitting out in the field all by herself and Manoah's not there. Now, I noted this last week. It would seem like it would save a lot of time and effort if the angel would just appear when the both are together, you know. But that isn't what happens. And he again comes to her while she is alone. This requires her to get up and go find her husband. Now, we can ask the question, did the angel say, go find your husband and I'll wait for you? Or did she just get up and run hoping the angel would stay? Or did she ask the angel to stay while she found her husband? Well, the scripture is silent. doesn't say. But uh, one of those things must have occurred. And she ran and got her husband to, to bring him back so that he too could see the angel face to face even as she had. Manoah is a bit of a pointed person, we discover here, because as soon as he arrives on the scene, the first thing out of his mouth is, are you the one that appeared to the woman? Uh, I don't refer to your wife as the woman, but anyway, that's what it says here. <laughs> I, I would have, you know, are, are you the first? I mean, especially given the fact that tomorrow's Valentine's Day. Uh, did you appear to my dearest wife <laughs> over here last week or several days ago or, or not? Notice, however, that Manoah also refers to the angel as the man. Are you the man that appeared to her last week? Maybe that was just his way. The. <laughs> Are you the person? Are you the man? Are you the woman? But I think what that tells us is that this angel did not appear as we often visualize an angel, which of course is non-biblical, but we visualize this angel with these big wings, you know, appear like this uh, talking to, to people in a long white robe. Now, there are scriptures to support the long white robe, but no scriptures, of course, to support the wings except for the cherubim and seraphim. And generally speaking, that's not what appears to people. And whatever that means about cherubim and seraphim is, is another matter, too, that we won't uh, try to debate here today. So he appeared as a man. He appears as a man. Although she said to her husband, he was very awesome. You know, how was he very awesome? Well, there must have been some kind of a unseen connection between the angel and her that day because there's nothing to say the angel appeared any differently to Manoah than he had originally to the wife. And as we go through this, we'll see that they at first do not recognize that this person is anything really out of the ordinary. Manoah 
accepts the simple answer from the angel. He just says, I am. I am. I am the one that appeared to your wife. And then what we notice in this passage is that his question was appended to a statement of faith. Manoah arose in verse 11 and followed his wife. And when he came to the man, he said, Are you the man who spoke to the woman? And then in verse 12, Now when your words come to pass, what shall be the boy's mode of life and his vocation? Are you the one? And when your words come to pass, notice the juxtaposition of the question and the affirmation. As I thought of that, immediately came to mind was Zacharias. Let me just read back, uh, read to you from back in Luke, the first chapter. The story we know well, of course, particularly from the Christmas season. But Luke chapter 1, reading at verse 18. And Zacharias said to the... Now, Zacharias is in uh, serving in the tabernacle, and, I mean the temple, and uh, an angel appears to him. And Zacharias says to the angel, How shall I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. Zacharias said, how shall I know that this is true? I mean, he's talking to Gabriel in the temple. How shall I know these things are true? And here is Manoah out in the field talking to somebody who just kind of walks up or just appears. And, and, he, and he says, are you the person? And he says, well, then what shall we do when your word comes to pass? Implication is, I believe the prophecy. When Manoah asked how the boy should be raised and what his vocation should be, the angel said, I've already told your wife what to do. Angel doesn't mince words, doesn't repeat himself much. I've already told your wife what to do. Believe her. <laughs> Listen to her. She has heard what to do. She knows the answer to the question. And then the angel simply reaffirmed his previous statement to her that she was to be a Nazarite also until the baby is born. She was to follow the Nazarite vow until the baby was born. Let's read on from verse 15 and see what, uh, what happens. Judges 13, 15. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you so that we may prepare a kid for you, a, a baby goat, of course. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. But the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the kid with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord. And he performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. For it came about when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of fire of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. 
Now the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah or his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. So Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have, have let us hear things like this at this time. Remembering, of course, the case of Gideon, when the angel appeared to Gideon, Gideon did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Manoah and his wife did not know that this was the angel of the Lord. But he wanted to practice proper Near Eastern hospitality. And so he offered to prepare a meal for this visitor. But you'll notice that the angel declines the offer. He will not eat with them. Instead, he says, if you want to do something, make a burnt offering unto the Lord. Well, Manoah responds by doing just that. But he's still uncertain with whom he's dealing. Therefore, he asks the angel's name. Now, remember, his wife had said, I, I didn't ask him anything, and he didn't tell me his name when she first saw him. So now Manoah is saying to the angel, what is your name? So that I can honor you when your word comes to pass, when the reality of the birth of the son occurs. I want to be able to honor you by name. I think in this that Manoah is not really demonstrating what we would call overt doubt. But I think that there are questions in the back of his mind. There's just a little bit of uneasiness about this all. And he's not absolutely dead certain who this person is that he's talking to. And of course, the scripture says he does not know that it is the angel of the Lord. But what is the fabulous part of this whole passage is the angel's reply to Manoah's question concerning his name. He says, why do you ask my name? seeing that it is wonderful. Now, this is not just you know, an offhand statement here. This is a very, very specific word, a very specific statement. The Hebrew word translated wonderful is pella, and it means astonishing. It means incomprehensible. It should be understood, I think, in the sense of, given that my name is absolutely incomprehensible, why do you ask it? Well, as you think about that, what angel has a name like that? No angel. I mean, Gabriel, we can understand that, right? No. What is being said here, this is a statement of deity. No angel has a name because this is the name which is above every name, which is the name of Jesus Christ. And, and so we're looking here at, the, at a Christophany, as at the incarnate Christ appearing, the not yet incarnate Christ, pre-incarnate Christ, as it would be, appearing to Manoah and his wife. In the context of divinity, uh, you probably think of the same passage I do in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, where in reference to the Messiah, it says that his name will be called Pela Ya'atz, which means wonderful counselor. And of course, goes on to say mighty God, eternal father and prince of peace. And so as you take that word and put that word into this context, I think we can understand we're talking about a theophany, that God has appeared in angelic or human form before Manoah and his wife. Well, in a very similar manner to Gideon here, Manoah sacrificed a baby goat or a young goat 
and made a grain offering on a rock nearby. This is, remember, what Gideon did. He also made an offering on a rock. In that particular case, of course, the angel touched it and the whole thing was incinerated. In this case, we're not told that. But we are told that the angel performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. The angel performed wonders. The wording, however, that passage seems to be that the wonder was in that as the fire burned and as the kid and the grain was consumed and the smoke and the flames were rising to heaven that, that the angelic person, that the man just kind of went up into that and then rose into heaven right through the flame and the smoke. I mean, that would be pretty wonderful, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be a wonder to watch that happen? And it was for Manoah and for his wife. This is a miraculous confirmation of faith. Miraculous confirmation of faith. We see it over and over again throughout Scripture. God miraculously confirms his faith to many individuals. They now had their eyes open, as it were, and they saw who had been before them. Fell flat out on their faces before the stone where the offering was made and worshipped the Lord. Scripture tells us the angel of the Lord would not appear to them again, but they knew that they had had an encounter with the Almighty. They knew that. And notice the difference in their reactions. I think this is really classical in many ways. Um, it, it just kind of demonstrates the fact how, how men and women are different in, in their approach to things. Manoah feared for their lives. He said, we're going to die. Because he remembered, of course, God's warning to Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live, as we read in Exodus 33. But notice Manoah's wife's reaction. On the other hand, <laughs> she's a little more practical, a little less theological here. And she points out that if God had intended to kill them, uh, he wouldn't have accepted their sacrifice, and he wouldn't have said, I'm going to send a son through you who's going to save Israel. You know, I mean, it's pretty hard to send a son through people who are dead, you know. Well, God could do all kinds of things, but generally he doesn't do that. And so she kind of wakes her husband up here. Uh, yeah, that, you know, that's true. Theologically, that's true. But obviously, uh, in this particular case, we have not seen God face to face as he is referencing back to Moses in Exodus 33. You saw the veiled face of Christ. You saw Christ, as it were, veiled in a human form. You didn't see the unveiled face of Christ. Reminds me of Paul's journey to Damascus when he was knocked off his donkey, and all he could remember was that there was a light brighter than the noonday sun, out of which came the words, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And of course, even then, it was veiled. <laughs> it was veiled. I don't think the world could stand the unveiled glory of God. Obviously, it could not in its sin and degradation. Well, let's read the last uh, couple of verses of the chapter. Then the woman gave birth to a son, and she named him Samson. And the child grew up, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Manadan between Zorah and Eshtol. This is the Sorek River, right here. It's not exactly a mighty river. It's one of those things that flows out of Israel, and half the time it's dry, just a dry wadi. In the wintertime, however, if, if it rains like it's been here, you probably have noticed there are rivers where there never are rivers, normally, right now out there. 
And, and so there's, the river flows right down through here, the Sorek. Well, you'll notice the city Beth Shemesh. I'll mention that one in a minute. Just uh, right about there, I can't hold it still enough, but right about there <laughs> is uh, Zorah, where he was born. And so he's born just over the line from Philistia. This is the Philistine territory along here, and this is the Israelite territory over here. And so he's just over the border. That's where Samson will be born. Samson is born right near the inhabitants of the land of Philistia with which he will do battle. Well, this is the answer to prayer. As promised, the baby was born, a son, and they named him Samson. The scripture does not say that, that they were told what to name their son. The scripture does not tell us the meaning of the name Samson. However, the, word, the name Samson is derived from the Hebrew word Shemesh. See Shemesh right there? Beth Shemesh, the house of Shemesh. Shemesh means son, that which we have not seen for several days. Not son as in son like daughter, but the thing that shines in the sky, right? Son. That means the house, house of the sun. So they named him Samson, which derives from that word. Most likely... Samson means roughly sunny, S-U-N-N-Y, meaning cheerful. And of course, cheerful in the sense that you are the only child of our old age and only child of our marriage here, and we're delighted to have you here. We're told that God blessed this son. God blessed this boy, and he grew up to be strong and healthy. And he was a great joy to his parents. He was not only their only child, but he was a child of promise and a child of hope, a child who will be a deliverer, a shofat, uh, a judge, if it were, if you will. I think it gave them a thrill every time they looked at their son, not only to have this boy who, who took away from Manoah's wife the curse of barrenness, which was a real curse in that society in those days, but was a child who I think was a joyful child and, and a delightful child in his early days, and that he, of course, was the child of promise. He was going to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines, the hated enemy. And, of course, for people who lived in that area, the hated enemy was very near. So they're constantly reminded of him, of them. Finally, he became a man, an adult, and this Holy Spirit began to strengthen him and to inspire him to action. The sight we're told in this passage where the Lord came upon him and began to stir him was Manna Dan, which means the camp of Dan. And that was located uh, right, right next to these places. These places are so close together, it's hard to even get a dot in between them. But Beth Shemesh is here, and Zorah is here, and Eshtel is right about over here. And in between those two was Manna Dan. So it's, it's right in this, this general location right, right here. We're told in Scripture that he will later be buried in the same site. Samson was about to become a unique deliverer. You remember, as I do, the story of Barak, the story of Gideon, the story of Jephthah. In the case of all three of those men, and probably of other deliverers, even though not, we're not given great detail, when they dealt with the enemy of Israel, it was they who called an army and they who led an army. In the case of Samson, there is no army. It's one man and God against the enemy. 
Samson is a solitary champion on behalf of Israel in the face of the Philistines. This makes him unique amongst all the judges of Israel. His efforts against the Philistines will weaken them, if not necessarily so much in manpower, but weaken them in their faith that they are stronger than Israel, in the faith in their own gods. It will strengthen Israel in their belief in their own gods so that when the last judge comes, a man by the name of Samuel, and, and when he anoints the first king of Israel, a man named Saul, who then is replaced by another man anointed by Samuel, a man by the name of David, the Philistines would find their demise. They would find their defeat because ultimately David will conquer the Philistines and will make Philistia a part of his kingdom. Well, let's read on in the 14th chapter. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So she came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. Then his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all of our people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson, Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. Notice he turns to his father there. That's <laughs> yes, right. You understand, don't you, Dad? <laughs> mother isn't going to buy it. <laughs> However, his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, for he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Now at that time, the Philistines were ruling over Israel. Timnah was not far away. Timnah was right about there. Just over the border, down the Sorek River, Timnah was there just north and a little bit east of Ekron, which was one of the major cities. Was, it was a small village, a Philistine village. The Philistines didn't just live in that five-city uh, pentapolis that we talked about before, just the five major cities that are specifically mentioned. But they lived all through the region in various villages. And in fact, later on, they will conquer even well, well over into Israel. And at one point, they'll even capture this city, which is way over in the heart of Israel. The border between Israel and Philistia. Now, Scripture says that the Philistines ruled over Israel in the sense that Israel was drawn under their hegemony. But there was a border. There was a border between Israel, or the tribal land of Dan, and the Philistine area. And Samson crossed that border as he went from Zorah over to Timnah. Now, we're not told what his business was there. If he even had any business, we don't know. But he went to Timnah for a reason. Scripture, of course, tells us that God inspired this for the sake to have a reason against the Philistines. Now, that is not to say, and I want to emphasize this, does not mean that God put into Samson a spirit of lust, because God cannot do that. God will not do that. It is not of his nature uh, to do that. But while he was there doing whatever he was doing, he became enamored of this Philistine woman. What would you call it? Love at first sight or something at first sight of this particular woman. And here we get the first glimpse of the problem that would plague Samson for the rest of his life and would ultimately kill him, the lust of the eyes. Impetuously, as soon as he got home, he asked his parents to arrange for her to become his wife. Now, can we sense the bombshell that was for Manoah and his wife? Can, can we even begin to see this, this was a bolt out of the blue. This is sunny. 
This is our child of promise. This is our only child, the child of our old age, the one who's going to deliver Israel. And he's asking to marry a Philistine woman. Talk about consorting with the enemy. He's a Nazarite. A Nazarite is supposed to be dedicated to God and demonstrates it by the hair growing long and by com remaining completely free from touching dead bodies and from anything having to do with the fruit of the vine. And here he is asking to marry a pagan Gentile. If not amongst his own clan, then certainly within the nation of Israel there must have been a woman somewhere who would have made a better choice than this Philistine woman and certainly a woman who would even fulfill his specifications, whatever they were, you know. Someone who looked good to him, you know. Samson's parents desperately tried to drive the point home to him by saying or referring to the Philistines as uncircumcised. Now that isn't just a statement of something that didn't happen when they were young to the males. It's a statement of their spiritual standing before God. And this morning as I was going over this, this verse came to me. Let me just turn to it and read it to you from 1 Samuel. This is, of course, the story of David we know so well. David, when he sees this gigantic Philistine coming and defying the armies of God, David in Samuel 17 says, spoke to the men who were standing by him and says, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Talk about a man of faith. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? That's a pejorative statement. He is saying that that this man who stands before us is not only a physical giant, but he is an enemy of the living God and the enemy of God's people, Israel. I think sometimes that when we are pressed into the corner and we seem to be assaulted from all sides, we need to say that. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Who is this enemy that is coming in that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Circumcision had been given to Abraham as a sign to be placed upon the bodies of the males that would be his descendants, a sign that they belonged to God, a sign of the covenant that God had made between the descendants of Abraham and himself, a unilateral covenant that God made to Israel. And, and that covenant I, was, was a powerful covenant. It was so powerful that the word was spoken uh, by God that whoever blesses the descendants of Abraham will be blessed and whoever curses them will be cursed. To be uncircumcised was a sign of having nothing to do with the living God, of being totally outside the framework of God's chosen people, of being, as it were today, outside the church, I guess we could say. You and I bear the sign of circumcision on our hearts by the repentance which we have have gone through and the faith that has brought salvation to our hearts, this has created within us circumcised hearts so that we are spiritual descendants of Abraham, as Paul tells us. When Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments for the second time, God had warned about intermarriage with pagan peoples. And let me read to you from the 34th chapter of Exodus. 
Exodus 34, beginning at verse 10. Moses is on the mountain, and then God said, Behold, I am going to make a covenant. Before all your people I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among any of the nations. And all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord. For it is a fearful thing that I am going to perform within you. Be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorite before you, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, lest it become a snare in your midst. But rather you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and sacrifice to their gods, and someone invite you to eat of his sacrifice, and you take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. Israel was to, be, was to remain unprofaned by the gods of the land. <coughs> In the New Testament, the command was reaffirmed. In 2 Corinthians 6, we read Paul's words that we are not to be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship light with darkness? Samson's parents knew that if he married a pagan, it was much more likely that he would be drawn away from his God than that his mate would be drawn to his God. So in spite of his parents' advice, however, and their protestation, Samson said, get her for me. She looks good to me. In this, we find two major character flaws in the life of this man, Samson. First of all, he was a very willful man. He would not listen to the counsel of his parents. He demanded his own way, like a little child stomping his foot. Get her for me. She looks good to me. And secondly, he was drawn to surface beauty. He had a real weakness for physically beautiful women. In fact, as you go through the story, you know, uh, he ends up being involved with at least three that are specifically uh, pointed out, and they're all Philistines. And he had no perception of or concern for their characters. He wasn't concerned about the character of these ladies. He just liked the way they looked, and he pursued it. And next week we're going to see that Scripture says that God allows this for an occasion against the Philistines, but we must not believe God inspires this. God does not inspire wickedness. God does not inspire lust. God does not inspire the kinds of things that Samson will do. But God will use these things to accomplish His divine plan. So next week we will pick up with that.